the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the second hour of the Jimmy Sangenberger Show here on News Talk 710-KNUS. Good to be with you as always and to be able to engage in important conversations with folks who are involved in the most important discussions and policy decision making. And it is the most important, or at least among the most important things, When you're talking about education, because the youth of Colorado of this country are the future of Colorado in this country and how safe they are in school, how well educated they are in school. That is all up to the school districts and it is incumbent upon the elected school boards to oversee those districts which is why I am very pleased to welcome here in studio for his very first radio interview, as a matter of fact, a candidate for re-election on Denver's school board. That would be Scott Balderman. Scott, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Yeah, good morning, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Uh, I will acknowledge for a moment that you are on the program hosted by one of the most vocal critics of the Denver School Board. So I will give you kudos up front and we'll talk about some of the issues and challenges that I've had and and others have had as we get moving forward with our conversation. So I appreciate you coming in. Uh, It's not all the time that folks are willing to come on with critics. So I appreciate that. With that said... Who is Scott Balderman, and why are you running for re-election to the Denver School Board? So, yeah, in, in, yeah, thanks for having me on. I know you're a huge critic, and I love it. I, I'll talk to anybody and like love digging into the details and the policies. But I'm a parent of two da- or excuse me, two kids in DPS. I have a son that's just started as a freshman at South High School, and my daughter is in uh, elementary school right now. This whole journey started for me when I was the PTA president at their school. It was in two, from 2016 to 2018. I love that. It was a great experience. Uh, and that led into the teacher strike of 2019. I started attending pro-comp negotiations for some reason, but those are the types of things that when I see, it's hard for me to walk away from those, from those, uh, those problems I see. Background-wise, licensed architect. I got my master's degrees in architecture, and uh, as soon as I I, I worked, actually, I worked on the Hyatt Regency downtown for most of my architectural career, and then uh, started my own business. It was software, software business, focused on the construction industry, moving a lot of the paper-based procedures in construction into the web, and then I ultimately sold that company in 2012 and then exited the business in 2015 and uh, have just been trying to give back ever, ever since. So why education in particular? What is it from your PTA experience to the issues involved that got you to run the first time and have you wanting to run for another term? Yeah, I would say it's even larger than that. It's like giving back, it's, it, it, working on the greater good. And pu- public education is is part of that. I've always had an interest in politics and paying attention to politics and never self- saw myself getting involved with politics. 
but it, it led into that and and I've really enjoyed it and and I see this as a, a is a critical component of our society and making this world a better place. Now, there are many issues, we'll get into a bunch, that have been going on in Denver public schools uh, in the last few years, and particularly in the last, let's say, six months, there's been significant concern about school safety and discipline issues. And I want to start with the school safety piece, and we'll jump in here because it's just such a big deal. It's gotten more involvement from parents than I have seen in the entire time in the past few years that I've really covered DPS closely, and I think with good reason, because we have had a lot more violence on and near DPS campuses. We have had guns being brought into school grounds. We've had school shootings in campuses. Um, So that's a deep concern. You, in 2020, were on the board when they voted to remove school resource officers, sworn law enforcement officers from campuses, a decision that I've been extraordinarily critical of, um, along with so many others. And then, of course, a few months back, that changed when, in the wake of the shooting at East High School, the board voted four to three, with you included in the four, to authorize the permanent reinstatement of SROs. Why the change of heart? Looking back in... 2020 the what drove that i mean we were we were fresh into COVID at the time and i I was also a brand new board member getting my getting my feet underneath myself trying to understand the policy world and 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 we had a huge problem within the school district where there was you were twice as likely to receive a be ticketed or arrested if you were a student of color in, in the district there's been there was huge push from advocacy organizations to address that and ultimately, the decision of the board was to remove the SROs. Looking back, I wish we had taken the actions that we did in June of this year, in 2023, where instead of removing the school resource officers, that we had tried to address the disproportionate number of tickets and arrests from a policy perspective. That's what we did in June of 2023. So we're not, because I don't want, the, the concern was, we don't want to go back to, the, the situation we were pre-2020 where there was no real guardrails in understanding what the role of the school resource officer was. Uh, admin, I don't think there were clear uh, um, procedures in place that told administrators, how do we utilize SROs? So there was confusion in there. And I think when you have that ambiguity in our policies and procedures, that's what creates the problems. So what we learned... And actually, before I jump into that, we started, as each year went by, we saw a large increase in the number of weapons coming into school. That is what, that was a huge concern for me. And it actually, what caught my attention the most was in May of 2022, when we had the incident at Northfield. That ended the the 2022 school year. Uh, I think it's a week before school was out. And at that point, we were already seeing the data, and it was it was pretty concerning. So we, after the summer break was over, when we came back, the board did start discussing what are we going to do about safety. And we have what are called ENDS policies. There's six of them. Those are the priorities of our district. And they're like setting goals. They're like setting goals. And they're very short. They're meant to be aspirational. And one, one, of, our, one of our six goals was on – uh, health health and uh, COVID-related 
requirements. We were coming out of COVID. I think the site was like, okay, we're done with COVID. The focus was making sure we got as much in-person time as possible. We can, we can end that policy. And we started drafting a safety policy. The first draft came in, I believe, around October of 2022. And then it was ultimately voted in in February of 22. And then, or excuse me, February of 23, we voted that policy in. March of 23 is really when things uh, escalated. And then from my perspective, what I saw was, I mean, we're a billion dollar, $1.3 billion organizations. Things don't move quickly in the district. With our ENDS policies, we give the superintendent a one-year runway to create an operational plan to achieve those ENDS policies that we set for them. When East, what happened at East, or when East happened, it was, we needed to accelerate all of that work. Mm -hmm. That's what led to the exec, into the executive session. And, you know, the, the memo that was drafted was really a resolution directing the superintendent like, we need to get moving much faster. And I think that was a combination of the superintendent creating that operational plan and then which led into the SRO vote to bring and, them back. And we'll get more into that here in just a moment. I, I do want to disagree a little bit with one thing that you said. When you were talking about you don't think that there were guardrails in place previously, um, from folks that I have talked to in the school safety world within DPS, in 2013, you had an agreement that was reached between the district and DPD, Denver Police. And that agreement was used as a model for bigger cities like Cleveland and Chicago for what their relationships would be. Uh, I, I think that on the whole, you did have guardrails. You had specific agreements as to what the SROs would do and what was required for them and so forth. That was fairly robust enough for these big cities with even more gun violence, like in the case of Chicago, than Denver, especially at the time, to say, you know what? This is a model that we want to build off of. So when you say no guardrails, is there something in particular that you have in mind? Well, it's more that that MOU you're referring to is not policy. That was a contract between DPD and DPS. Sure. And it was 10 years old at that point. And there are definitely part components of that agreement that were not followed. There's supposed to be regular community engagement. And it was supposed to be renewed on an annual basis. I'm not even quite sure if that was happening. That was an operational decision and something that the board was not sure. involved with. But it was a serious enough thing that it should have been in board policy all along. And it wasn't. It was all done through through MOUs and contracts. So when I say guardrails, I'm really thinking more in terms at the highest level with the board and the superintendent. So there there was I don't I've read the MOU. I haven't looked at it in a couple of months, but I don't think it had the guardrails, the you know value related guardrails that I think the board and the district were looking for. And over time, you're going to have turnover. People aren't aware of that. New SROs, new administration, but now we have it at the highest level. So regardless of how long I'm on the board, the policies we have in place are going to far outlive my time on the so board. So would you say it was a mistake in 2020 to approach it as you did, hence your vote a couple months ago? Uh, I do think it was back. a mistake. Okay. I do think it was a mistake I because I, I wish we had done it from a – we should have been addressing the real problem we were having, which was the disparities in the tickets and the arrests. Mm -hmm. And – I, if we were going to remove the SROs, we should have also removed the administrators that were contacting the SROs. So, I mean, in that, obviously, we weren't going to do that. So, looking back and having conversations with Chief Thomas, like, we can actually solve this through written policy to 
to address both concerns around the safety as well as making sure that the police are there for safety and positive relationship building, not so much on discipline. Of course, what ended up being passed gave more latitude again to the superintendent. You had proposed a, a policy that had a bit more of these, as you call, guardrails and we won't get into that very interesting meeting. We talked about it on the show. Five but now, hours long. <laughs> but people are, seem to be pretty satisfied um, as far as how the, um, the, the superintendent so far is administering the SRO piece. But there's another piece that folks are really drawing attention to right now, and that happens to be the discipline matrix. Um, this is an issue that actually not long after the – District changed their discipline matrix, which gives guidelines for how you can address particular, uh, whether it's crimes or other behavioral issues from is this eligible for expulsion? Do you need to call the police? Are you allowed to call the police in these circumstances? You can't, for example, call the police if you have arson on a school, which is mind blowing to me. But you have uh, this these changes. And shortly after that, I was already starting to report on these are some things I'm hearing from teachers in tw late 2021. And now you have situations that have grown that tie into the discipline issues in terms of uh, various allegations of uh, students charged with uh, violent crimes going to camp, being welcomed onto campuses and so forth. From the discipline standpoint, let's start sort of big picture. What do you what is your thought on that? Yeah. When, when I think of discipline, I want to make sure that we always focus on the resources and the wraparound services early on in these kids' lives to make sure we're building, building or developing character and in always keeping kids on track when they do, do make mistakes. Uh, I, I don't think expulsion is the answer. Uh, because it's it's not correcting behavior. When a child's expelled and they statutorily, after their one-year expulsion, they come back to school. Behavior, that's not fixing the behavior. Then they, we, what, what I hope that we always do is we're getting those kids the support. Now, depending on what behavior we're talking about, there's a wide range. Every situation's unique as well. We, we need to make sure we clearly define what those supports are. And so for our most egregious uh, violations, that could mean Zoom. I mean, we, were, we did school by Zoom for a year and a half. So we, that could mean uh, remote learning in a different school. It could mean changing schedules. It could mean our, we have 20 pathway schools in DPS. All of those are alternate learning environments that I think should be investigated for, for students, especially with the most egregious violations or violent crimes. So we still are, as, as by law, we are obligated to give these kids an education. And I, I, I'm glad that we just don't go immediately do an expulsion, but we do need to find alternate, uh, or we need to, one, find additional counseling supports and possibly alternate learning environments for the kids that are outside of the classroom so they continue to thrive as, as well as their peers. Is there a, from the perspective of the allegations of violent crimes and so forth, and is there a policy change that may be necessary there? Because we are hearing, we constantly are hearing stories, it feels like at least, of schools that have said, hey, can we do something different with a particular student who's been charged with a serious crime so that we don't put other students at risk and they're being told 
no, you can't do that. You have to keep them in the school. That, to me, suggests that something might need to be changed at the board level to help uh, guarantee that you have a greater opportunity for safety because it seems like there's some operational decisions that are being made that are counter to that. Right. I, in, I mentioned policy guardrails around SROs. I think we need some policy guardrails, board policy guardrails at the highest level as well for our discipline. So there's there's no confusion. The, the discipline matrix, without a doubt, has some ambiguity in there. That documents, I was just looking last night, was created in 1996, the first version of it. And there's been iterations over time. And that's, to be clear, that's not something the board has from my at least in the last ten years has not been involved with drafting. That's left to our like legal department, more the experts on our school psychologists, uh, staff build that and then make that recommendation to the board, and we vote on that per state statute. But uh, last my last my train of thought there. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> when, when, when oh when you're, policy guardrails. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and I do think that we need to provide some clarity in there. The the biggest part. After watching these last three months, where I'm seeing where areas that need more clarity is around off-campus incidents. Mm. Uh, in state law, there's it references uh, there needs for an expulsion or uh, consequences by the school district. There needs to be a nexus. Unfortunately, state statute does not define what nexus means. So, on a school, each school district is in, interpreting that differently. What I think uh, this next board that comes on starting in December could be a high priority is, to, is actually to provide a definition of what nexus means. Mm-hmm. We, we need to – and then by providing that, that definition, we, the superintendent understands, the board's all on the same page, our administrators, and most importantly, our students and yeah. their parents and guardians. Now, uh, one, one final thing before we head to our break. Uh, when it comes to ambiguity, yeah, there's some ambiguity. There's also some specificity, some things in there where I mentioned just as one example because it keeps blowing my mind is arson. You light a school on fire and you can't you can only call the fire department. You cannot even call the police to report that. And there are other instances of of issues that are serious offenses or get people into being concerned where you're told whether or not you have the latitude as a school to call law enforcement. So to me, there needs to be more than just the nexus discussion. There also needs to be, okay, here are some of the guardrails, as you say, that need to be in place for what the superintendent or the administration can and can't do regarding some of those disciplinary actions. Yeah. Let's use our son as an example. I mean, that's another one of those where if we have a child that is involved with arson in some way, that student needs our support. Sending them home, giving them an out-of-school suspension is not going to solve that problem. Keeping them in school, possibly in an alternative, like additional counseling, uh, maybe Saturday school. Maybe this we, we start transitioning into, hey, as part of your consequences, we're going to have you go to more school. But, but to me, it also should require law enforcement at least being contacted and then being able to, to weigh in on that decision while addressing the school-based consequences right. as you're talking about. And, and I think that's another justification for having a school resource officer. We only have 17 SROs in all of our 200 schools, right. including our charter schools. None of our charters have SROs. And, but there's nothing stopping an SRO from going to a different school, having, conversa- having a relationship-building conversation, supporting that kid. But I think just 
giving that child a ticket mm-hmm. is not going to change sure. behavior. But we do. I, I agree. I think it would be fantastic if one of our, if our SROs were part of that process, not from a discipline yeah. perspective, but like making sure the behavioral the behavior is correct. Uh, behavior with young people is not simple. So of course there's complexities there and punishment alone may not be sufficient uh, as as you were saying. I would agree with that. Um, But it really needs to be addressed and I will just say I don't think the superintendent's doing an adequate job punting to to Harvard so far but we got to run to a break. I'll leave it there on that discussion. When we come back let's talk a little bit about academics and transparency in the school district and more as we continue. It's the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. Scott Balderman here in studio running for re-election to the Denver School Board. Keep it here, 710KNUS. With the best damn bumper music known to man, 10 years running, it's the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, News Talk 710KNUS. By the way, this is a tune by two past guests of the show. My friend Tommy Castro, I've been on stage with him three times playing harmonica, and... Joe Bonamassa along with him, two of my favorites. As we continue with our guest here in studio, Scott Balderman. He is running for re-election to the Denver Public Schools Board of Education. And I want to pick up on one thing very briefly before we get to academics, and that is transparency and executive sessions. We have spoken with one other board member on this program a couple of times before, Charmaine Lindsay, who had been... Uh, pretty outspoken about her belief in limiting executive sessions because they have been used too much by the school board um, in terms of going behind closed doors, most infamously, of course, the day after the shooting at East High School. And that led to a lawsuit that resulted in the district saying, you know what, let's go ahead and release this recording. It's about time that we do so. And this is something I know that you have been a little bit attuned to for a little while, going back to December of last year. I want to say that I have no idea what is going to be discussed in executive session, so I feel uncomfortable voting to support this, so I'll I'll be voting now. That was in executive session, a six-to-one vote going into executive session. Uh, You were the sole no vote. Talk to me about this idea of transparency and your view on executive sessions in the school board. Yeah. First off, I, I do... DPS is a is a transparent school district, one hundred percent. If you look at our if our you look at our board docs website, you can see videos, p- past meeting minutes from over ten years. Uh, when it comes to executive session, I, I think you're right. It is used loosely. I think that is actually a problem across the state, and in particular, our our own charter schools in DPS. If you look at their meeting minutes, you'll see illegal postings of executive sessions. So it's a problem that needs to be addressed. I, th- I think it would be something that the, the state should should look into. In, in our case, uh, it's in particular, there's there's things we can go into executive session for, and the things we must go into executive session for. Things like if we're discussing a student, or if we're discussing an employee, we must go into exec session. So that's that's under that's reasonable, but. Especially in the last two years, I feel like we've probably gone into executive session for reasons that were not necessary. Mm-hmm. We could have had these conversations out in public. I'm not saying that there's anything, any wrongdoing in those, but sometimes it's like, why? This just isn't necessary to be having these conversations. But the more than anything, I've already made a commitment. Like, if we can't, if we have to go into executive session, I will vote yes. If we don't have to, I'm going to be voting no moving forward. We we can have these conversations out in public. Now, in terms of the one in March, though, like that was 
you, you I listened to the whole thing, um, and and we know that a memorandum, a, what I'd say is a temporary policy put into place, changed because you were suspending an existing policy. To me, that's a temporary policy change. That's not allowed under the law. So it, it, it ended up needing to be released, which is why the district said, you know what, we're not going to pursue the lawsuit further. Let's go ahead and release this. Yeah. And to provide a little context as well, I was sick day two of COVID when all of this happened. It's one of the worst weeks of my life. But it's why I logged in remotely into that meeting. I spent the day before actually drafting that it was a resolution. Ultimately, there was a long conversation of, is it a resolution? Is it a memo? And ultimately that was voted in. That was something that I originally drafted. And before we even in that meeting, before we even got to that point, I, I had already, I had to leave. I was feeling so ill, but that is uh, it's a little context on that. But from a legal standpoint, I, I don't even want to look at this from a legal standpoint. It's during the meeting, you saw at least four board members question, should we be talking about this in exec session? That should have been like a red flag right there that we yeah. should have ended the meeting right on the spot. So I do, I, I was one of, I was one of the board members that questioned it. And we on the spot, we should have we should have once we were done talking about student, once we were done talking about the personnel matters and we shifted into the conversation about returning yeah. SROs, we should have ended the meeting right there. Not from even like a legal standpoint, but from a what was right. It was the right thing to do. We should have exited that meeting. Um, I would love to talk more about this, but we are always tight on time. So oh, yes. I want to get to, yes. to academics in a, a couple of respects. Um, we just had, of course, uh, CMAS scores released uh, just in the last month or so, showing that we still in Denver have not recouped the learning loss, still 2.5 uh, point percentage points behind in the number of students who meet or exceed expectations. Um, when it comes to English and mathematics, also according to the Colorado Sun, uh, low-income students attending DPS, the state's largest school district, are showing greater deficits after historically performing slightly better than their peers across Colorado. In math, 32.5% of low-income students in DPS did not meet grade-level expectations, compared with 29.8% of students in poverty statewide and English language arts. It's 26% of low-income DPS kids compared with 24.1% uh, in poverty statewide not meeting those expectations. Now, that's not good across the board, whether you're at the state level or, or in DPS, but there are some serious academic issues in Denver public schools as I look at it. How do you view it? Yeah, I, it, I mean, this really shows the huge impact COVID had on 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 our kids, especially our our students experiencing poverty, students are multilingual learners. And I, I have not received the full presentation from our from the district yet on the CMAS part, but we, I did get my presentation yesterday for READ Act. And what the READ Act is, is uh, measuring students' ability to learn, essentially read, uh, measuring reading between third and eighth graders within the district. And that is a brighter spot for sure within the district. And I've, I've got, you know, looking at my data here, in particular, I'll, I'll highlight a few here, but for, like in the spring of 2022, uh, our black students were at 38% at grade level or above. But in the fall, or excuse me, in the, I have that reversed. 
In the fall of 2022, 38%. And in the spring of 23, 45%. So a 7% increase. And for our our Latinx students, they went from 37 to 49, 12% increase. And overall, uh, the district went from 48% to 57% of kids reading at grade level or above. We even had some schools highlighted that saw an 18% increase. So huge, huge celebrations when it comes to our reading. But yeah, from a from CMAS perspective, uh, our superintendent's evaluation is next month. And his metric for the whole the district as a whole was 2%. But as you pointed out, that it, we're roughly about 1% increase. So it's trending. It's not trending down. It's trending up. But we didn't. We did not hit that two. Or yeah, the district did not hit the two percent mark. Well, still the numbers that you read, maybe they're showing some improvement. But if you have less than fifty percent in that way, to me that's failing students. But we've been the, the district has historically been failing students, especially our our black students. So this is this is not new. This has been decades of 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 failure of of students. And so there's a lot to be done in that regard. And and one thing for me, and this is where we have a bit of a disagreement on policy, I think that when you're looking at academics, it is crucial to enable parents to provide the best quality education for their kids by making a choice as to where they want to send their kids, maybe to schools in innovation zones or to charter schools, to a variety of different options. There has been a fairly robust choice program in Denver public schools, which to me is crucial because the parents are the ones who are most responsible for educating their kids, making sure they're getting the best quality education. And in that regard, you have had some votes on innovation zones and, and some other choice-related matters uh, where I, I think they're misguided. Uh, I'll, I'll say it that way. But I'm curious for you to offer up your thoughts then to me on, and, and our audience as to where you are on choice as one way of addressing the ability for parents to, looking at these data points, provide the best quality education that they choose for their kids. Yes. Thank you for asking me this question because there's a there's – misunderstanding of where I stand on this. I fully support a parent guardian choosing a school that is best for their child, 100%. But that is not really what school choice is. School choice is a market-driven model of having schools competing against each other, having money follow the child with their school, more of a an experience of the, more of a shopping experience in many ways. Uh, it, it really puts more of the accountability down on the school level versus the accountability at the highest level at the superintendent and, and the board. So that is, yes, where I – let's talk about governance models because, yeah, you're right. I have, I have, uh, I have concerns around – I don't have – innovation schools. There's in between innovation schools and innovation zones. There's, there's a lot of confusion around that. Innovation schools – provide plans and waive certain state statute, district policy, uh, sections of the collective bargaining agreement. That's that's what makes a an innovation school. I'm okay with it. I like I support innovation schools. There are certain waivers I do not support. And then I've I've actively uh, proposed policies and got them passed that prevented us from waiving certain teacher rights, for example. That's a that's been a big big discussion. Innovation zones though are very similar to charter schools. They have an external board. It's a nonprofit corporation, 501c3. And those boards are 
sometimes made up of parents and community members, sometimes not, sometimes lobbyists. And it, my experience and I, is that those, those boards are not accountable to the voters. They're accountable to the parents that take their kids to the school, though. True, but they, but they close like a business when there's a problem. So in my last four years, there's been nine charter schools that have closed. And one of them, I got a 24-hour notice. And in each case, the parents were really upset. And you know where they went to? They didn't go to the, the board and the school. They went to the school board. But there's nothing as a school board member I could do. And a lot of these schools that have closed were created before my time on the board. So I felt very I, – I, it was disappointing that I was not able to help those parents. And actually – and then there were two cases, two schools, uh, REACH – which specialized in uh, providing supports for students with disability in the boys' school of Denver. Both of those schools, I thought, provided unique opportunities for kids, a unique service that were, were, did not recruit enough kids, did not have the finances in place to be able to survive, and they closed. Both times, I advocated for the district to acquire the assets of that organization, those two schools, and then shift them over to district-managed schools so those kids did not have to find a new school. In all nine of those schools, the majority of the schools were serving our most vulnerable populations. That's concerning to me. And so that's where I think there are great things happening in charter schools. There's not so great things. There's great things in neighborhood schools, not so great things. I think it is too risky to have the external nonprofit boards, businesses, running our schools where we are not able to step in and help them. And we had a school last year that ran out of money halfway through the school year. And they came to us and looking for a bailout. And we gave it to them. That's that does not that's not supposed well, to happen. At the same time, and, of course, as you acknowledge, there are issues, you know, pros and cons to these different school situations. And when you look at the the current state of affairs academically in DPS, I think the idea of, uh, of the school district itself inherently being like the uh, almost like it, it, we're the 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 entity that sort of knows better than the charter schools because of some of these instances that come up. Uh, I, I don't necessarily see how that bears out um, and, and where it to me, if a parent wants to yes there will be instances where a school will close and they will air their complaints and their frustrations towards the wrong place the school board and the the, the school district board but by and large it's still the opportunity for a parent to make that call as to the school they go to and actually lets them make puts them in the driver's seat as opposed to the school district right no i i agree i think that is i'm okay with a parent selecting their school, but that's very different from different governance models with varying degrees of accountability mm -hmm. to them. But you're right, though. I mean, it's it's different options, but in my experience and just where I land, I, I believe we should be a school district and not a district of schools. Scott Balderman, our guest, we definitely need to run to a break here. Fascinating conversation. I'm enjoying it. Uh, he is running for re-election for the Denver School Board. Keep it right here. It's the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, 710 KNUS. Originally by Stevie Ray Vaughan, this is Reese Winans, the keys player for Stevie. His cover from his album Sweet Release of Crossfire 
with Sam Moore singing and Kenny Wayne Shepherd on guitar. And I thought apropos when we have a member of a school board that has been, you know, you're always caught in the, the, the rhetorical crossfire, as it were. And it is... Um, it's good to have him in studio. Scott Balderman, candidate for Denver Public Schools Board of Education, running for re-election. In the next hour, we will continue our conversation for a bit longer because we haven't gotten through quite everything. We've got a couple more minutes here um, and actually may just extend in the next segment uh, on this issue of school choice. I'm I'm a proponent of it. We were talking during the break. Um, I'm a believer that parents should be able to choose. And competition, I don't think that's the driving reason for it, but I don't think that that's a a bad thing. Um, And there's this issue, of course, of of vouchers, which I would say we don't have in Colorado in a real sense. What's your thought? Sorry. So conceptually, I do think. We are a voucher system in in Colorado and in particular in, in DPS. When a when funding follows the child, that's that's a that's a voucher. Really, what doesn't make Colorado a true voucher state is you can't take that voucher with you to a private school. And so, in the case of our charter schools, they are private organizations, but can only take public money. And what DPS has created is what's called student-based budgeting, very much a voucher concept. In DPS, you can go to any school you want, and currently the way the district funds our schools is the money is tied to the kids. And and so that's what creates that competition. I, I, I really do believe the, the whole – the driving force behind that is to get schools to compete. So you have this ecosystem within DPS where you can go to any school you want. Just in Denver, the money follows you. So conceptually, that is a voucher system, but we call it student-based budgeting. We are at the top of the hour. We have to run to a break. We will have a little bit more of the conversation. Scott Balderman staying in studio a little bit longer and joining the conversation as we continue on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. Uh, we'll put a pin on this point here and uh, talk a little bit about the, the nature of the school board and why run for re-election when there's so much that – I mean, this is a this is a – uh, a district that's in the news quite a bit. So why do it? I'm very curious about that. We'll talk a little more. One more segment on the other side. Appreciate him sticking around. Scott Balderman in studio. He is, again, running for re-election in Denver Public Schools. And then we will open up the phones afterwards in the remaining time we have. 303-696-1971. It is the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, 710 KNUS. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 